in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 27 through 30 this morning. Last uh, Sunday night, many of you will recall, we spent a wonderful time at Barb's birthday bash, and uh, we enjoyed a, a great meal and some fireworks and uh, mostly good conversation and fellowship. Mostly. Mostly. <laughs> And I was sitting with, um, we were sitting with uh, Buzz and Sandy for a while um, last week, and she told me that as she was visiting with their grandkids, uh, she went to a church, and the pastor was also speaking on the Sermon on the Mount. And she said he came to this passage that we're going to uh, talk about today, and he had announced the week before that it would be a PG sermon and for the children not to be in the service when he spoke on this passage, and I thought, well, we've never really put much attention to that here. Uh, we love having our children here, but uh, I, I noticed some of the ears of the parents perked up as I said those words. Um, but if we preach Jesus, we need to, we need to preach Jesus. And uh, parents, when that uh, happens, and, and there are some um, difficult passages, uh, you are the best discipler of your children. Uh, so here we go. <laughs> Today is a topic that I think, uh, I dare say, touches, touches everyone in this room at one time or another. We are looking at the really the meat of, of Jesus' sermons. In, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through uh, 48, he gives us some, some examples, but it's, it's right in the, the meaty part of of the sandwich from chapter 5 verse 17 through chapter um, 7 verse 12 is really the body of what he wants to say. And then he's going to give us a conclusion at the end and he's going to give us choices, five, five choices that we can take. We can take the narrow gate or the wide gate. We can take the, the easy way or the, the hard way. We can be trees that bear no fruit or trees that bear fruit. We can focus on the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of earth. We can build our house on the foundation that is firm, or we can build it on the sand. And that's all going to come from what he is saying in, in chapter 5 and chapter 6. And in, in these verses from verse 21 of chapter 5 through, through verse 48, he gives us six, I think we could say, rubber meet the road examples of what exceeding righteousness is. Uh, in verse 20, he had told us that if your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't get into the kingdom of heaven. And now he's explaining what he actually means by that. Jesus, he expects beatitude people, and those are, those are people who come to Christ empty-handed, um, bankrupt before God spiritually, uh, who mourn over their sin, and that mourning leads to repentance, and who worship God meekly because of God's grace in their life. He expects those people to live a deeper righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees and the rabbis and all the other Jewish leaders who had dumbed down the teaching of the Old Testament to only, to only external actions. They had... They had narrowed them to a physical act 
whether it's murder or whether it's adultery. And Jesus, he's going to go to the attitude that is behind the action. And we saw that last week with the um, with commandment number six of murder and the attitude of anger and hatred. And, and if you are angry against your brother, if you hate your brother, you are a murderer. And there's not one of us who has not at one time or another done that. And this week, the knife cuts a little bit deeper. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 28, 27 through 30, Jesus preaches on the sin of adultery, going to the attitude behind it, a, a lustful look coming out of an adulterous heart. Let me read those verses for us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. For you heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus in these verses defines redefines adultery, and he gives us the remedy to follow in order to avoid the sin and to avoid the consequence of hell. So we're going to look at those two things, his redefinition of adultery and then his remedy for adultery. Redefinition of adultery in verses 25, 27 and 28, and then his remedy in verses 29 and 30. Jesus redefines adultery in verses 27 and 28, from an act to an attitude. First of all, verse 27, you've heard it said, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus moves now from the sixth commandment last week to the, the seventh of the Ten Commandments this week, and he's, he's contrasting the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven with the righteousness of the religious leaders of his day. And he continues to define for us this idea of exceeding righteousness. And he does it by giving us six examples with the same formula. He's going to say, you have heard it said, but I say. Jesus is now the authority on what is truth. That's what he's talking about when he says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. The law and the prophets, they speak of me. I am the end of all of those things. And so you have heard it said, but now I say to you as the fulfillment of everything that was said by Moses and has been distorted by the scribes and the Pharisees, I now tell you this. And he begins in verse 27 saying, um, you have heard it said, you should not commit adultery. Now, the technical definition of adultery, I think we, we know, but as a reminder, we're, he's talking about, the, Moses writes this, he's talking about the sexual immorality with another man's wife. Adultery is the destruction of marriage 
through sexual immorality. Job considered this a heinous crime. Adultery is the, the breaking of the vow of wedlock. It is the breach of wedlock. It tears even into the moral fabric of our society. How does it do that? By damaging children, by destroying families. It takes the person who is the adulterer from a life of order to a life of chaos. It takes them from a life of transparency to a life of, of hiding and a life of shame. If you just want to see the, the seriousness of this, just read uh, Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 and see what they say about adultery. Let me just read a couple of those verses. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Verse 27. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk with hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who, does, who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Moses tells us in Leviticus 20, verse 10, that both the punishment is that both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. The Pharisees were quick to point this out. Um, they, in John chapter, chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, we had the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. And in verse 4 of John chapter 8, I'll begin in verse 3. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placing her in the midst. They said to her, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, caught in the very act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And you know the story, and Jesus bends down, gets down in the, into the dirt, and he, he starts writing something in the dirt. And I don't know about you, but I've always wondered, um, what did he write? You know, we talked about drawing a line in the sand uh, of sin and running from that. Did he draw a line in the sand? You know, he knew these guys. I often wonder, did, did he write their names in the dirt? And did he write their sin beside their name? Were some of them adulterers as well? Because they all slink away one by one, and Jesus forgives the woman. Job took this as a very serious sin in Job 31. Job 31, verse 9, we read these words. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman, and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her, for that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for that would be a fire that consumes as far as a bottom, and it would burn to the root all my increase. It would destroy my life, Job is saying. 1 Corinthians Chapter 6, Paul 
has some words about uh, this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul writes these words. Or do you not know that all unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Hebrews 13 says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us that the consequences is sin. He uses the word again, Gehenna. We talked about that, that last week. The valley around Israel is a place of eternal fire where, where there's a stench of sulfur and of burning flesh. And, and we're told that the worm never dies. And Jesus says this sin, this sin deserves that punishment. Now, some of you are saying, you know, I'm good with that. Uh, I've, I've never slept with another man's wife. Don't intend to. Well, I'd ask you to just tune back in for a bit. You need to tune back in because that was the teaching of the rabbis. Those who um, had not committed the physical sin, they had limited that commandment. They had narrowed that commandment, not, not to the desire, but to the physical act. They didn't think about uh, commandment number 10, do not covet your, your wife, your neighbor's wife. They had just narrowed the definition of sexual sin and they had broadened the definition of sexual purity. They said, you know, I have sexual purity um, because I have had sexual relations only with my wife, not someone else's wife. And you know what? The rabbis were right, but they don't go far enough. Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. You remember Jesus said... Uh, said this in verse uh, 19 of chapter 5, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. They were relaxing these commandments. They were saying it is, it is the physical act only. If anyone relaxes one of these, he is the least, perhaps meaning he'll not even be in the kingdom of heaven. Mark 7 says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anyone. It says, it's not on the what's the outside. By the way, I think that's the favorite verse of, of the dirty little boys who play out in the dirt and they come into dinner. And mom says, wash your hands. And they say, mom, but to eat with unwashed hands don't defile anybody. Kids, don't use that with your mom. You might, you might find out that's not, uh, not the best thing to say. What is Jesus' point here? 
Is Jesus' point is, is, I believe, what he says in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 25. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. That is, external religion doesn't cut it with God. Keith Green was a, a Christian musician years ago Probably some of you have never heard this song, but he had one song that has always stuck in my mind. And it comes from uh, 1 Samuel 15, where uh, we are told to obey is better than sacrifice. And his song went like this, to obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want your life. And I hear you say that I'm coming back soon, but you act like I'll never return. And that's what Jesus is saying. You need, to, you need to live and act like I'm coming back tomorrow. And this is what you need to do. Now, a couple of clarifying statements before we get to Jesus' redefinition. Jesus is not saying anything negative here about sexual relations and a marriage bond. And men, you can, you can thank God for Song of Solomon. That is a, a psalm that uh, everyone here thanks God for. Also, if you are single, don't, turn, don't tune out. Why it can be argued that Jesus is talking here about protecting the sanctity of marriage, and he was protecting the sanctity of life in, in the, his statement of redefining murder, that doesn't make sex outside of marriage right. But it can also be argued that verse 28 broadens what Jesus is talking about here when he says in verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That he broadens the audience, not just to those who are, are married and looking at another man's wife, but uh, referring to unlawful sex outside of marriage, whether, whether practiced by married uh, people or unmarried people. He uses the broadest definition of adultery here. And if you're a lady, don't tune out. Now we know that six, we're told that 64% of Christian men uh, watch pornography at least once a month. But we're also told that those who admit it, 15 to 20% of Christian women do the same. And that's those who will admit it. And so this is something that touches all of us. And by the way, you don't need to be involved in pornography to commit this sin. Before internet, there was the JCPenney catalog. It had a bathing suit section. And I remember when I was a little boy, I was probably 12 years old, and our pastor preached on this, and he said, if you go home and you put the J.C. Penney catalog on its spine, where will it open to? Will it be the bathing suit section or the sports equipment? And I remember being so afraid that my dad was going to go home <laughs> and take that J.C. Penney catalog and let it open up because I, I knew where it would fall. He didn't do that. I was so thankful. He probably didn't do it because he was afraid my mom was going to do it. <laughs> you don't need it. You don't need um, pornography. You just need 
a heart that needs to be transformed. I remember being a 12-year-old convicted, convicted of that as a 12-year-old. So adultery, it's a heinous crime, destroys a family, punishable by death. Seems as though the rabbis were right, but Jesus continues his thought in verse 28, but I say to you, you may be right, but you didn't go far enough. You only went to the external. And Jesus is going to destroy the self-righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, those who, who were clean on the outside. He'll say to them, you need to work on the inside. Why? Well, Psalm 66 gives us a, a hint of that. In Psalm 66, verse 16, you read these words, Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. And then verse 18, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I cherish iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear my prayers. And so in verse 28, he says this, I say, anyone who is, um, verse 28, um, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Anyone who looks at, anyone who is in the process of a continued look. I had another pastor, pastors love preaching on this passage apparently, he talked about a 7-Eleven store and in the old days the 7-Eleven store the, the, the pornographic magazines were behind the counter and they were hidden and he said if you're in a 7-Eleven store and you look at and you glance and you see that that's not a sin but if you turn back and you you spend some time on that, that's a sin. Well, I, I think he was partly right. It, it, it's not a glance. It's, it, he says it is the purposeful look. I don't think it de it's determined by how long you look at something, but it's the purpose of which you look at it, to lust with intent. In order to turn that person into an, an object for my desire and for my control, Sin happens on, on that look. The problem, you see, is not in the, in the glance or the length of time. The problem is in the heart. In Job 31.1, Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes. I made a covenant with my eyes. But it's not the eyes that's the real problem here, is it? Romans 12.2 says, be transformed or renewing of your mind. The heart in Scripture is the mind. The sin takes place in the mind. He has already committed adultery in his heart. The sin already happens in the heart. The heart leads to the look, and the look comes from seeking an object. It's like the chicken and the egg. Which comes first, the, the chicken or the egg? Which comes first, the look or the sin? I think the sin is already in the heart, and the heart is looking, is seeking an object to satisfy its desire. That's why Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By the way, 
The problem is not in what she's wearing. It doesn't say that you looked lustfully because she was wearing or not wearing something. Jesus puts the onus 100% on the one who lusts. So don't preach from this passage, it's, it's her fault. He is putting it on the one, the, the one who lusts. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. All these things come from within and they defile the person. So Jesus redefines adultery as he did murder. He goes to the attitude, the attitude behind the act, that if you do not struggle with Jesus' words in what he is saying in these verses, you are the exception. You are the exception to the rule. Because when we read these verses, we come with a plea and we say, Lord, help me. Because this is something that touches every person. What is Jesus' remedy? Jesus redefines it to the act, to, to, to the attitude from the act. What is the remedy? Verses 29 and 30. Verse 29. He says this. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus' teaching is true for today just like it was with Job. That the, the acts of sin are preceded by the attitudes behind them, by the imagination, by the fantasies of sin, and they're fanned into flame by, by the eye, the undisciplined eye. What does he mean here? This was one of Jesus' apparently um, favorite sayings because he used it again in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 7, he says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptation come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for, your, for you to enter life crippled or lame than, into, than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the fire of hell. Jesus is saying this applies not only to what I'm talking about now, but it may apply specifically to what I am talking about now. It applies to all sin, all sin that is in our heart. So what does he mean? Well, Origen, one of the early church fathers, took him literally. We're told that he castrated himself. He would later uh, repent of that, and I'm and probably pretty sorry for, <laughs> for what he did. Uh, but apparently he read also Matthew uh, 19, verse 12, that says, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. While his heart may be, have been in the right place, his um, interpretation of Scripture may have been a little bit off. 
You see, tearing out your eye or castrating yourself doesn't eliminate lust. Tearing out the right eye doesn't stop the left eye. Cutting off your right hand doesn't stop the left hand. More likely what Jesus is saying here is, that, is the emphasis on, on right, the, the right eye or the right hand. And I'm sorry for you lefties, you southpaws. Uh, but the right hand was the dominant hand, the dominant part, the strong part, the most significant, most important part, most important hand. And he's saying that there's nothing, there's nothing that is too precious to eliminate, to get rid of in your life in order to take care of this problem of lust and avoiding hell. John Stott writes it this way, not mutilation, but mortification is the path to holiness. And mortification, or taking up the cross to follow Christ, means to reject sinful practices so resolutely that we die to them or put them to death. Whatever causes you to sin, Jesus is saying, you need to, you need to get rid of it. Let me be saying that. I've tried. I can't do it. I'm okay for a while and right back in it. What do I do? How do I do this? The process of de dealing with sin requires us to understand two things. The seriousness of sin and the love of God. We need to understand how serious this is and how much God loves us. There's more to the law and the prophets than just external obedience. You have heard it said, but I say. There's more to this than what the rabbis are telling you. They miss the whole point of the law and the prophets. They miss the whole point of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the gospel is the gospel. In the New Testament and the Old Testament, the gospel is the gospel. Revelation of God's commands came through Moses. Moses gave the law. God gave the law through Moses. The prophets, what did they do? They commented on the law. They interpreted the law. They called people back to the law when they disobeyed the law. And now Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you an authoritative truth that the gospel in the Old Testament is really the same gospel as in the New Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Old Testament, uh, we get the, the Ten Commandments or what we generally think of as law in Exodus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter 5. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, um, we have the second um, recording of the Ten Commandments, a summary of the law of God. And, and Moses and the people are... Moses is not going to make it into the promised land because of sin, but the people are getting ready to move into the promised land, and Moses is reviewing the law, and he's telling them to make this covenant with God concerning the law. And right after that, in chapter 5 and chapter 6, some verses that Bob took us to this morning in the Bible study hour, perhaps some of the greatest verses in all of Scripture and and um, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
Look at verses 4 and 5. And by the way, if you're doing the narrative Bible reading, you will know that verse 4 was the uh, memory verse for this week. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you knew that, <laughs> but just saying, you would know that if you were doing that reading. Verse 4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. With all your might. Jesus repeats these words in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Jesus is being tested. He was tested by some Pharisees, and now he silenced them, so the scribes are coming up. And uh, in Matthew chapter 22, uh, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. That's verse, verse 35. Asked a, a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. That is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He said, you want to interpret the law and the prophets, this is how, this is how you do it. The Old Testament was not all about law and legalism, but it was about love. And God wants a relationship. He wants us to love him with all our heart and soul and strength. It's a heart commitment. You are to love the Lord your God. God always sought a relationship of love. God begins with love, and he begins with the heart. And what are the commandments? The commandments are regulations of that love. They show how we love God. They define love. In the New Testament, we say, we say if you, Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? You will obey my commandments. It's love first and then commandments. And in the Old Testament, if there's no love, then the commandments are meaningless. The commandments are worthless. God has always wanted a relationship, not obedience, as Keith Green wrote. A couple past chapters over in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Let me just read a couple of these verses. This was after, after the Israelites went crazy with the golden calf and Moses uh, threw the tablets down, destroyed them. God gives him the tablets again, and he's talking to the people here. And verse, uh, verse 12, he says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, walk in all his ways, to love him, and serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Same thing. You are to love him and you are to serve him with all your heart and your, all your soul. Verse 15, let the Lord set his heart in love on your, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose your offspring. God loved you before this law came. He loved you uh, before the exodus, but the exodus was proof of his love for you. Then verse 19, he says, love the sojourner, therefore for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. You were a sojourner, you wanted to be loved, so love the sojourner. Chapter 11, you shall therefore love the Lord your God, and then 
Keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And in chapter 12, verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. Of your heart. God has always wanted our hearts. Love comes before commandment. Before the law was given, he established a relationship with Israel. He redeemed Israel out of Egypt. The law wasn't the cause of the relationship. The law was the expression of the relationship. Before the law, he had a relationship with Israel. He redeemed them out of Egypt. In the New Testament, Jesus, we say we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. The Ten Commandments were a way to regulate that love. They were the definition of love. Redemption came before commandment. God has always wanted obedience. He's always wanted a relationship before obedience. Jesus says sin goes to the heart. And if we don't understand sin, and we don't understand love, we will not understand salvation. The Old Testament folks, they couldn't keep the law. But God did not leave them in, his, in their guilt. He gave them the sacrificial system. He gave them a way to confess their sins. It didn't forgive their sins forever. They had to do it over and over and over again, but he gave them a way to deal with their inabilities. It didn't make them right with God, but it pointed them to Jesus. So how did it do that? Hebrews chapter 10. We don't have time to read much of it, but for verse 1, for since the law was but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true from, uh, form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers have once been, once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It wasn't for the purpose of taking away their sins. It was for the purpose of pointing them to Christ. And because of that, we have a priest who intercedes for us, a high priest who is perfect, who understands our sin. And so Jesus is saying, you can't do this. He is driving them back to the, to the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes lead to the cross. Old Testament believers look forward to the cross. Jesus is the Messiah. They were expecting the Messiah. They were expecting someone who could, who could free them, who could save them. We, we look back at the cross. But the gospel is the gospel is the gospel, whether in the Old Testament or the New. Christ gave us a new heart. A heart that would treasure him. So what is our job in all of this? 
Our job is to love him through loving others. To love him through loving others. Galatians 5 says the whole law was, was fulfilled in one word or one command, and that was to love your neighbor as yourself. There's no love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength in Galatians chapter 5. It's a chapter of the, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And there's no love God in that because the way that we show our love for God is how we show our love for one another. That is how we show our love for God. So when we love others as ourselves, that is, that is loving God. And what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5 is that a lustful look does not love your neighbor. The solution is drastic action. Do whatever is necessary because the love of Christ, because of the love of Christ, because of the seriousness of sin, and because God has always been concerned for your heart, he's not concerned for the external. He wants a full life devotion, not an external devotion. He wants a people with pure hearts, single-minded focus on Christ, put the blinders on, take drastic action. If your eyes, if your eyes are the problem, don't look. If your hands are problem, don't do it. If your feet are the problem, don't go wherever your feet are taking you. Obeying this command does require a certain form of amputation. And if you have a problem in this area, it could be getting rid of a cell phone or at least dumbing it down so that it does text and, and phone calls. Maybe it means not going to certain places that you enjoy going to. Maybe it means not watching certain films. Maybe it means not reading certain books. The question is, are we willing for the sake of Christ to endure those losses? Are we willing to have a, an accountability partner? You know, when, when we were in missions, um, all of our missionaries had uh, covenant eyes on their phones. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's a, it, is a, it monitors your phone and it sends a message to someone, and, and my someone was Lori. So I was pretty, you know, pretty uh, intentional about the phone because I knew it was going to, to my wife. But are we willing to do that? What about inputting grace in our life, the means of grace, Bible reading, listening, prayer, church worship, sermons, tapes, whatever it is, a steady flow of the input of the grace of God to renew our minds. You know, in business, there's this, um, this slogan, G-I-G-O, good in, good out. I think we should have one, grace in, grace out. You put grace in your life, you will get grace out of your life. You see, when we are in sin and our conscience convicts us of our sin, it's a sign of confusion in our life because we're living by a different standard. And God has wired us to live in a lifelong commitment to one person. And so Jesus says, deal drastically with sin. Don't play with it. Don't nibble at it. Don't get close to the line. But hate it and fight it. Colossians 3, where we started this morning, and we'll close with this. Colossians 
Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put it to death. And then in verse 6 he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Jesus says the same thing. Deal with these. If this is, if this is evident in your life, if this is characteristic of your life, you are in, uh, you are in fear of hell. Jesus' teaching that sin leads to hell, we need to take that seriously. Jesus is not looking for external, external obedience. He's looking for the heart. He's looking for a whole life commitment. And Jesus is saying in this commandment, you've heard it said, don't do these things. I say, give me your heart instead. Let's pray together.